This is History Lab, where we explore the gaps between us and the past. I'm your host, Tamsin Peach, and today we have something a little different for you. We're taking a little break from our regular programming to take you behind the scenes of the making of History Lab. We're going to show you how we do it, why we do it, and how you can do it too. Now, if you're new to History Lab, head back to episode one and start from the top. It'll make much more sense this way, trust me. But for old hands of History Lab, just a heads up, this is our second last episode for season one. Right now, our producers are slaving away in the studio making a doozy of a finale app that will be ready for your ears on the 25th of July. So sit tight, more History Lab is coming. But for now, we want to lift the curtain on our show and unmask History Lab. Joining me in the studio is someone who is very important. She has been invisible for this series, and in that you've never heard her voice on tape. But she is in charge of running the ship that is History Lab. It's Emma Lancaster, our History Lab executive producer. Come on down, Emma. <laughs> Thanks, Tamsin. How are you? I'm very well. Now, we've had lots of interest in how we make the show, so we thought it would be a good time to answer some of your questions, uh, have a bit of a chat about our process, and also how you can get involved in History Lab for Season 2. Yay! So first off, I think we should go back to basics, um, but obviously essentials. And for all the historians listening, they'll know the answer to this. But I want to start at the beginning because this is where my learning began when we started making this pod. So Tamsin, what's the difference between history and the past? I feel like that's that's an essential that just needs to be said. Totally. And often those two words get conflated with each other or they're used as synonyms. But the past, historians usually think of the past as all that complex, that vast masses of stuff that happened years ago. Some of it left traces and some of it didn't. Some of those traces were deliberately collected because people at the time thought they were important or they thought they told a certain kind of story and most of them weren't. So in this sense, we can never really access the past. What we do access are its incomplete traces. Whereas history, history is how we make sense of what we've got left, how we interpret the traces and the absence of the traces, what historians call evidence or, you know, you might remember from year 12 primary sources. So as such, historical analysis is, it's always contingent. It's always subject to contestation and change. And it really reflects the time and the politics in which it's written, in which it's produced. The historian of uh, classical Rome, Mary Beard from, um, from the UK, she says that history exists in the gaps between us and the past. And so Mary Beard, well, when you first introduced me to her, I looked her up and I I fell in love with her because she's this fag smoking, like down to earth woman who just tells it like it is. And it's kind of not what you expect a historian to be, well, like your first kind of like the stereotype of historian. Um, but obviously she has inspired our tagline for the season and we're all about exploring the gaps between us and the past. Mary Beard gets down and dirty and she's always questioning what we can know, what it's possible for us to know. So why do you think, Emma, having made three and a half episodes of History Lab now, that a historian should tell history through the medium of podcasting? As a podcaster, I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, and I could just like rattle off those stats that, that we know 13% of Australians have listened to a podcast in the last week alone, and that's up from 10% in 2017. Uh, and tens of millions of Australians are downloading pods every month. So it's a great way to speak to people. There's an audience out there who want to listen. 
But I think also it's more than that. Audio is this intimate and this really immersive thing. It's a great way to bring your research to life in what we call rich sonic documents. And podcasting is also, it's a new medium. So it's a great place for experiments, which History Lab is in a way. And also for me, there's, you know, lots of similarities between audio and history. Uh, Both are temporal, they're emotional and they're transportive. There's also a lot of crossover between the methods of investigative reporting and historians. Both disciplines love digging. Also, I think history is a process. It's full of questions and interpretation and disagreement and uncertainty, and that makes perfect fodder for a podcast, for a story. And to me, a great story always has action. Something has to happen. Um, you can start lining things up, like this happened, then this, then this, and it raises the question, you know, what's going to happen next? And we call this technique in storytelling narrative suspense. So the secret to a good story for me is the artful reveal of information. As unanswered questions create this tension, it's like this itch that you just have to scratch. So to me, the shape of a story is all about throwing out these questions to keep people hooked uh, and then answering the questions along the way, and sometimes not. But most of all, what I think historical narratives do really well is it makes listeners think, and, and when they walk away from listening to an episode, ideally, you know, they know something new. But also this small story is connected to something bigger and it helps them understand the world. And that's absolutely one of the things I've learned from you and from the other producers is some of that art of storytelling. I think historians could all probably learn a little bit about that. (laughs) Look, I think it's a beautiful marriage of disciplines, really, journalism and and, and history. And they often say that journalism is the draft of history. And so I, I feel like this, this marriage of disciplines is just a natural match. But like many marriages, it has its moments of um, tension or perhaps the coming together of two different ways of looking at the world. And it's in the coming together of those two different ways that so much of the productivity and the beauty comes, I think. And I, I love, maybe we'll talk a little bit about how that has rolled out for us because certainly I came with some historians assumptions and I think the journalists came with some journalist ways of going about things and we really have worked together to make sense to each other. Totally yeah look I think there are conventions that you learn in order to make and your making is making history and my making is making stories and telling the world about things and I think one of the greatest challenges I came across in doing this project has been dealing with historical detail storytelling does not like detail good storytelling you know get me to the 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 next part of the story I, I don't need to know all the details and I feel like I have caused a lot of frustration for a lot of historians I, I think particularly uh, we had Catherine Biber in in episode one and I, I kind of said to her oh you know when you when we do interviews with you you kind of like say the same thing in like three different ways all in the same grab and she's like well no they're all three different things <laughs> and and they are three different things but for the purpose of storytelling I only need that one thing. Yeah, right, right, the granulations between them. And that's, I think, one of the ways we uh, worked out some of those differences was by this concept of the history iceberg. Um, Because so much of what is above the surface of what we hear on many podcasts, history podcasts and other podcasts, is the story. It's the who done it, how did we get there, and the sort of thrill of finding out. 
But underneath that is a whole set of research that often just gets um, assumed or it's, it's subsumed in the process of the storytelling. And when I think we arrived at this line with History Lab, which is our sort of behind-the-scenes motto, that we tell good stories but we're about much more than the story and that the story of History Lab is in, in a way the finding, the story of finding out, of how you know. That's the story. Um, I think we, we found a way to translate each other's methods into a tagline. I, I think we did. I think we did. I think what's beautiful about History Lab is it's doing something that a lot of history podcasts just don't do, and that's unmasking our sources. And also a lot of historical narratives, they'll kind of frame themselves like, this is history and, you know, this is the truth and this is what happened. And really we're, we're saying, okay, so this is one thing that we think happened. We think it happened because of these reasons. But, you know, we could be wrong and and that's okay. And this is our interpretation. And I think not pretending to know it all is the the beauty of it in a way. I think you're right. And that's, to me, that's really important because, some claims about the past are much more uh, evidence than others. And so there are things we can know about the past, whereas there are some things we can't know about the past. And so being transparent and honest about those modes of knowing is really an imperative if we want our claims to be trusted and believed. We've got to leave the kind of crumbs in the forest so people can follow us. That's right, yeah. And and that makes you vulnerable. And I don't think historians particularly like that at first, but it, it leads to a better story because it makes space for something that's complex and and it also makes space for contestation as well, like disagreement, uncertainty, but uh, I think it builds a stronger product in a way. Yeah, that, I mean, that's really interesting to hear um, because my way of talking about that is to say, I think it also means we trust our audience. And to me, that's one of the things podcasting is so brilliant at, is that it really says, here, I'm in your head and I'm going to work with you and you need to work with me because you've got to bring all of what I'm saying to life for you. And historians, I think, are often very invested in academics generally in the authority that comes with being an expert. And you've got to let a bit of that go to make a good radio show. That's right. I think, you know, audio, it, it's persuasive. It whispers in your ear. But also it is about imagination. Like one thing that we do with podcasting is we kind of create this rich layer of production and a reimagination of the time. So we'll use things like actuality so and create scenes and get voice actors to read speeches from the time but there's an element of acting in there and an element of creativity and that jumps out at you and it's something that a journal article just can't do. Just can't do. So for those of you who are interested in checking out the history iceberg that Tamsin mentioned, if you head to our website which is historylab.net uh, then you can actually see it there, and um, it's a it's a beautiful work of art that I think um, Tamsin made herself. Did you, or it, it did ex- you steal it off the internet? It I don't extended know. all of my photoshopping skills to their absolute limit. <laughs> there you go. It's it's there for you, along with a bunch of other extras on the website. Yeah, you might like to read why podcasting matters to historians. It's a, a document that sort of sums up a bit of the history lab philosophy and why we think it's something really new in terms of podcasting, not just in Australia, but across the world, really. Yep, head there for a good read. 
Now, you don't just need to take it from us about what it's like to work here at History Lab. We've called in our first collaborating historian from episode one, which was Lindy Chamberlain and the Afterlife of Evidence. And her name, of course, is Catherine Biber. And in this first episode, we find out what happens to all the stuff collected after a criminal trial and how often this stuff takes on a life of its own. How did you get involved in the process of making History Lab? I think I was invited to um, to present my research in a new way. I'd done um, a number of scholarly publications from that project, and for me it was an opportunity to find a new way of expressing that research and potentially a new audience that I thought would be interested in that material but who probably wouldn't be readers of scholarly publications. So the usual outputs for historians, the usual way they, or academics generally, communicate their research is in books and journal articles and maybe, if you're lucky, you might write a piece for the op-ed for the newspaper or for the conversation. But this is uh, an output that is an audio output. Um, how is that different? How is making that different uh, than than those written like forms of communication? That's a good question because, of course, the outputs for law professors are very similar to those of historians. Mostly we write scholarly, inaccessible pieces to a very narrow audience. Um, so, of course, having to present my research in in this format presented me with a lot of challenges and also exciting opportunities. Also, this research project was quite different to my earlier ones. This is the first project I've done where I've gotten out and spoken to people. So I spoke to Lindy Chamberlain Creighton about the afterlife of the evidence in her case. I spoke to archivists and curators and conservators and other kinds of creative practitioners. I spoke to legal practitioners, to judicial officers. And so this, for me, was the first time I'd done that kind of research, speaking to people. But also for this project, and particularly in the the Chamberlain case, I was driving out to different repositories and seeing stuff, which is was a departure from my traditional form of research, which was primarily um, desk-based and book-based. I mean, there's a wonderful piece in in the podcast, and I don't think we're going to give too much of a spoiler alert to say that you went, you go into the National Museum's archives to look at some of the material, and we capture all of that on audio, and it it conveys something of the experience of research and what it is to encounter objects. How did that feel for you? Yeah, that was a very memorable and rare experience in my research. Um, Most of my research is about criminal evidence and criminal cases anyway are largely emotional, traumatic, sad, distressing. But most of that in the course of my research um, is experienced on the page where I might be reading, for example, a judicial decision, a judgment where someone has narrated the facts of the crime and it's left to your imagination to to appreciate the emotions that might lie behind that. But in that case, in the example that you're talking about, I went and saw for myself and touched for myself materials associated with the death of a baby, a young baby. And that gave me a close emotional connection with that baby's death in a way that I had not experienced in any of the other legally produced materials. And perhaps not expected? Definitely unexpected. Um, I mean, of course, I always knew that Azaria was a nine and a half week old baby who'd been killed by a dingo on a camping trip. But 
seeing the materials that you're referring to reminded me that she was a baby and that she was a loved baby and that she had um, things, clothes, um, a body. And it also showed me how small she was, how tiny she was. And seeing all of those things kind of revived her before me in a way that I had not appreciated before. I mean, I think for most Australians who have a memory of the Chamberlain case, Azaria is this never-seen character who is a important character in our 20th century history, but we forget that she was a person. And so for me, that experience was an important reminder that she was a person. Aside from History Lab, one of my favourite shows is ABC Radio National's The History Listen. Each week, host Rebecca Huntley brings the past to life through eyewitness accounts and a deep dig through the archives. You can catch The History Listen on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. So we promised that we'd lift the curtain on what the making of History Lab is like. Emma, what, what, where do we start? Well... I want to talk about the bag of tricks that we as journalists and audio producers come along with, what we bring to the table. You know, when working with historians in order to tell their research in an entertaining but thorough way. So every collaborating historian gets paired up with a producer who works with them to build their episode. That's right, isn't it? The producer gets familiar with the historian's research. They interview them multiple times and they work with them to find sources and talent, this lovely audio word, that's what journos call the people they interview. That's right. And together they develop a script. Yeah. And, you know, towards the end of the process, uh, we bring in a sound designer who, who starts scoring the piece. And that's where we start to add music to the mix. The beautiful thing about History Lab is obviously, you know, finding traces of the past and using them to build up what we call a sound picture. So we can often do this by using archive of sound. I think one of our episodes, um, Damages for a Broken Heart, has Freud's voice in it. Really scratchy piece of audio. We've done that with episode three in the um, Titanic. There's um, audio of actual survivors in there. So you're really kind of creating this rich world of sound. But, you know, what happens when we do that is we're kind of creating this soundscape of history and scoring with music and atmosphere and actuality. It's so crucial because what it does is it really breathes life into the piece. So we want to play you an example to show you exactly what we mean. So here it is, the first few opening seconds of History Lab Episode 3, When the Titanic Sank in the Desert. Now, this is it without music. There's a book called In the Shadow of the Titanic, and I always relate to that name because I sort of feel like I myself grew up in the shadow of the Titanic. On the 14th of April 1912, the Titanic, a British passenger liner, hit an iceberg during its maiden voyage across the North Atlantic. And here it is with music. (laughs) 
There's a book called In the Shadow of the Titanic and I always relate to that name because I sort of feel like I myself grew up in the shadow of the Titanic. On the 14th of April 1912, the Titanic, a British passenger liner, hit an iceberg during its maiden voyage across the North Atlantic. When I was about six years old, I was given a jigsaw puzzle of the Titanic in its last throes, very cheerful present for a child. It took two hours and 40 minutes for the ship to sink, leading to the deaths of almost 1,500 people. With half the ship underwater and the other half sticking up in the air and lifeboats coming away from the sinking ship. And, uh, yeah, that was my job for the next little while, to put together a, um, a jigsaw puzzle of a tragedy. Do you remember at the time what you actually wanted for Christmas? No, I don't, I'm afraid. I think at six years old I probably wanted a puppy, but I don't, I don't know. This puzzle of a shipwreck that a six-year-old Sarah Gregson was gifted by her parents one Christmas morning in the 1960s depicts one of the most infamous maritime disasters in modern history. So you can hear how this medium can really come to life when the sound musicians get involved and how academic work and how sound builds emotion and experience into the piece. Yeah, that's right. What we do is we really intensify that experience for the listener by scoring this beautiful piece of music that kind of builds. And what we do with music is we can use it to emphasise something, to create a feeling and to make you feel something, which, you know, music can be a bit manipulative sometimes. Um, But also you've got to use it sparingly because the listener, you, you know, you know when we're doing it to you. So the other thing is silence. It can be so powerful as well. And you'll you'll hear throughout the, the season how we do that. Yeah, there, there are techniques that, that we use to make you feel something, but it, really what it does is it's just adding to the existing research and the existing tape that historians come with. And if you feel a little bit, of, you know, maybe some historians might feel a bit uncomfortable about that idea that we're injecting emotion into what is essentially for them a historic historical document or historical investigation. But I think the idea that the history we write is objective and dispassionate is really one that went out, you know, decades and decades ago. We know that the history we write always has us in it. And in a way, what the podcast is doing is really letting other people into that process because we've all had the excitement in the archive when you find something, when you come across this incredibly intimate or personal uh, revelation in the material. And I think what you do with the sound is you make that experience that the historian has one that everybody can participate in. That's right. And your your history, by, by history as I see it, is meaning making. And this is just another level of meaning making. So the other thing we do as storytellers and journos is structure your work. So structure historians' work. So what we do is we collect all the interesting bits and put it into a narrative. So story structures can also work on, you know, a couple of levels and and it's always the hardest thing to crack. What are we open with? What are we ending with? How do we tell this story? It's the age-old 
problem. And I think historians struggle with this as well when writing themselves. But what we do often just to kind of let you into that process is we create chapters in the work. So we know that there are particular parts of the story we have to tell that we have to hit. Um, So we go out and we collect information based on that. So that'll be you, the historian, riffing with Tamsin in the studio. It'll be us kind of shaping questions that well, us, I mean the producers, uh, shaping questions with the historian and then going out to talent that they've identified to kind of add and build to this story, build to this narrative and this history. And often also we assign themes. So we like to divide the work into acts. And often what I do, this is like my process, but I don't know if it's everyone's, is like you just kind of figure out the last grab. So a grab is the audio from the historian. It could be what they've said. And I kind of kind of figure out the ending and then I figure out the beginning. So I kind of write to that last grab so I know where I'm going. I mean, your sense of that, Emma, I feel is really intuitive. It is. It's a gut thing. And I think also like a lot of the reason why I do journalism is because it's a taste thing. Like, you know, I have a way of kind of saying I, I want it to be like this. And because I'm a, I'm the EP, like I get to work with the producers to figure that out. Um, and that can be a hard process too. But The beauty of audio is that it is this collaborative thing. It's a hive mind thing. There are multiple people working on a podcast, uh, on this particular podcast, and so I just think it has strength built into that because of it. It's more thorough, it's more entertaining, and I think also you, you get this unique approach from the historian and a unique approach from the producer, the journalist, and it just creates this lovely thing. And as a historian, I think that is one of the things that is at first perhaps a little bit uncomfortable, but Mm. that becomes a truly extending aspect of what making a History Lab episode is. And I, I think that historians have to be prepared in a way for the wonderful opportunity of having their work look a bit different than they would themselves make it. That's right. Yeah. And I I think that can be hard um, for some people, but I think all of the collaborating historians that we work with love the end product. Um, And that's the thing. Like, it's not just a piece of history that you're kind of putting out there in the world. It's this lovely collaborative thing that's organic and grows and goes through this process. And because of that, um, you end up with something new and hearing something new because of it. Absolutely. I think you can hear that the final product is much greater than the sum of its parts. So that gets us to pitching. Uh, Ah, pitching. Woohoo! <laughs> so there's been this overwhelming response from people who want to get involved. I know, it's fantastic. It's really fantastic. Uh, so how does the pitching process work? So History Lab is open as a national platform and we're taking pictures from our culture keepers right now. Uh, so you could be a historian with a research project or a cultural institution or a member of a community group or even a school group and you can pitch us an idea and we can work with you to bring history to your ears. So to find out how to do that, all the information is on the website at historylab.net. There is a pitching form and there's also a collaborators agreement which details all of the elements of what goes into making a podcast. And if you have any questions that extend beyond that form, please do get in touch because as you said, Emma, we're really happy to work with people in funding applications um, and in shaping what a product might look like. That's right. 
But the thing to think about, historians, if you're listening, is that a hook is not the same thing as a research question. A hook is what somebody sitting on a Qantas aeroplane might click on to find out the answer to. That's not the same as what you might put in your research grant application. Yeah, they're they're a little bit different. So you've got to think, you know, what's interesting about my research? What's sexy about it? What do people want to know about it? And then we can work with you from there. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Now, before we go, we want to do a big shout out and thank you to all of our listeners. We have been smashing out some records on the Apple Podcast charts, and we now have nearly 20,000 listens. That's right. So thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And, you know, of course you can leave a review for us on Apple iTunes should you wish to record your enthusiasm. Uh, But we have loved receiving your feedback on Twitter uh, and in the ratings. And, you know, if you like History Lab, why don't you tell your family and friends about it? Because, obviously, the more people who know about us, the better. Now, next time on History Lab, we will be having our grand finale episode of Season 1 for you where we go fishing for answers. It comes out on the 25th of July. Sure does. And finally, if you are a culture keeper, you could be an archivist, a librarian, a curator, collector or a historian and you've got a great story idea, don't forget to send us a pitch. Just head to historylab.net to find out more. And History Lab is made in the studios of 2SER 107.3 FM that sits on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. We pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging who have been telling stories since time immemorial.